previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. People that consider this team to be a joke, I mean, they have a point. The owner's a joke. The team hasn't done anything since 91, and it's just frustrating. From Delaware, almost live, this is the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the weekly podcast featuring interviews with guests discussing their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. Welcome back to the Sports Refuge Podcast, the show where guests share their connection to sports. This is episode 104, and I'm your host, Earl Holland Jr. Andre Collins' basketball resume is one that even the most diehard baller would aspire to. The Crisfield, Maryland native has competed and won championships on the prep level, leading Crisfield to a Maryland State Championship in 2000, winning an NCAA Division I title as a member of the University of Maryland men's team in 2002, and ultimately winning a title as a professional on the international level. In this episode, I talk with Collins about how his love for basketball led him on a hoops journey across the world and back to his hometown. And I talk with Collins about how his love for basketball led him on a hoops journey across the world and back to his hometown, and how he has not only given back to the game that gave him so much, but to the area he grew up in. We now start my interview with Andre Collins, already in progress. He's been a champion at all the levels, at high school, at the college level, at the international level, and the professional level. And I'm glad to have him here to talk about his love and passion for basketball and really giving back to the Eastern Shore area and his native Crisfield. With me here is a guy who uh, has really no need for an introduction because everybody knows him if you've seen him play, and I've heard legends about him. This is Andre Collins. Andre, I'm so glad to have you on the podcast, and I really do appreciate you being a part of this, and thank you so much. Thanks for having me, man. I'm happy to be here. I appreciate you inviting me on. How did you find the love and passion for the game of basketball? Uh, honestly, it was it was kind of just following behind my older brother, Andy. I'm about three years younger than him, um, so when he got of age to be able to start you know, kind of leaving out the house on his own and going down the street and hanging with his friends um, to go play basketball. I always wanted to go with him. They would more than likely most of the time tell me no when I was younger. Um, You know, so I would just sit in my yard and kind of just shoot. Or those days that we would ball up socks and take all of my mom's clothes baskets and all of her clothes hangers and we would wedge them in between doors and pretend they were basketball hoops. Uh, lampshades, you name it, we did it all. Um, you know, so all of that was a part of my process of falling in love with the game of basketball. Did you do the crates, the milk crates? I know that everybody talks about that's become the new thing to do, especially if you don't have anyone you're playing with. Some people just nail the crate up to either a tree or a power pole and then just use that as a means of a basket. Yeah, absolutely. We did that mostly at my grandmother's house. It was a lot of woods in Marion Station. So we would pretty much nail, we would cut holes out of buckets, cut holes out of milk crates. Um, Anything that we could figure out, you know, something that the ball could go through, we did that. Uh, Bicycle rims, we cut all the spokes out of those and, you know, nail it to a tree. You know, like I said, we we did just about everything just to to have that round hoop, sort of say, and figure out ways to play basketball. Who did you try to emulate as much as possible. I know, especially coming up, we're probably about the same age, so I'm assuming Jordan, Magic, maybe Bird. I'm not sure who stuck out to you. Well, I would say as far as my idol uh, is most definitely Michael Jordan. Uh, 
However, my body frame doesn't fit. You know, it's not the same as his. I would say if it was anybody that I tried to emulate and try to kind of pat my game after um, or take things from would be Allen Iverson, like his crossover and scoring ability, figuring out different ways to get your shot off, especially being a small guard, a small scoring guard. I used to study him a lot, study my older brother a lot. And I was, when, when it comes to Michael Jordan, I just wanted his attitude and mentality of, of wanting to be a winner. So, you know, I took a little bit from, from a lot of different guys. Uh, but as far as my actual game, I, I always try to, to watch the shorter players like Allen Iverson. I guess when it comes to developing basketball skill, which is the thing that comes easier first? Is it the shooting skill? Is it the ball handling skill? To you, what do you feel like was the thing that came more naturally at the beginning? I think for me, I think I had a natural ability, a natural talent to kind of always handle the ball, to be able to shoot. However, I think for me, it wasn't that one thing came before the other. I think I just put a lot of time in on my craft, you know, so it was really hard for me to say what I was best at prior to the other thing. I just know I worked really, really hard every single day I was out shooting a basketball. If I didn't play, I would have a basketball with me walking down the street. I'm always dribbled the ball everywhere I went, you know, so all of those type of things played into my abilities to be able to shoot and handle the ball. So it's really hard for me to say which one came first, which I was better at. And then going on to playing at Chris Field, you had an amazing run there, especially under guidance of, of the late coach Phil Rayfield. Did you play varsity from the beginning or did you play in the JV as a freshman? How did that go? No, so I played varsity my freshman year and it was a quick adjustment for me because I was a manager for the varsity team when I was in seventh and eighth grade. So I used to ride my bicycle over to practice from middle school every day. And every now and then I was able to practice with the team if for whatever reason didn't have enough players or something like that, or just after school playing pickup with the varsity players. So I was accustomed to that level. So it came pretty easy for me, easy to adjust my freshman year playing varsity. Was it more the athleticism or was it the speed of the game that was the biggest thing to make the adjustment to? Uh, I think it was actually playing for something. You know, when you get to the high school, obviously you're playing for your school and you're playing to try to win a state championship. Um, in Chrisville, the tradition, you know, basketball tradition is very rich. It's uh, one of the most important things in the town. So, you know, for me, it was just kind of adjusting to a level of playing for the entire city, the entire town, you know, as well as far as on court. When I was in high school, I was freshman year, I was probably 100 pounds wet, you know. So probably, you know, just being able to take the bump from the kids and, and stuff like that from the other teams. But I think it was a quick adjustment for me because I did grow up playing against older guys. When did you feel like you had hit your stride playing at the varsity level? Was it sophomore year or did it continue to progress as you went along? Or was there a particular moment that said, OK, I can be one of the best in the Bayside? So it was actually my freshman year. We were playing against Cambridge South Dorchester and they had some really good players that year, really good seniors. And I was able to compete with those guys, got some good playing time that game, came off the bench. And that was actually from there I started the rest of the season uh, after that game. Another game, we played Bennett at Bennett, and I had my career high as a freshman that game. Uh, I had, I want to say it was 28 points off the bench. You know, I led the team in scoring that game. And, you know, from there, it was just 
you know, my confidence was high. And like I said, I always believed in the work that I put in in the early days of me working on my craft and just how competitive I was and the success I had in practice against the guys that, you know, that, that I knew were really good players that were on my team. What was your average day routine when it came to basketball? What did you do for, I guess, for training and repetition? Honestly, back then, you know, we didn't do a lot of training. That's kind of like more so what these younger kids do. Back when I was growing up, I just went to the basketball courts all the time. Where I went down to my uncle's house all the time. And and I would be out there playing basketball. If, if I was by myself, it didn't matter. I would shoot all night, all day. You know, and I just believe in my abilities. I believe in my talent. I always felt if I could stay on the court with my older brother, I could be out there with anyone. Going into the run, especially winning the state championship, what was that experience like? And how did you know that this was the year for the Crabbers? Uh, well, honestly, it began in the summer of my, well, actually in the spring of my junior year. Uh, after we lost in the playoffs my junior year, um, I knew I only had one year left. And my goal since a kid was to try to win the state championship for the city of Chrisville, for Chrisville High School. And that summer, we all got together, all the team. We worked hard. We played together. We traveled together. We went to camps together. Everybody was locked in, and we all had one goal. You know, we knew it was our last year as far as being our senior year, and we wanted to to do something special. It hadn't been done in, I believe it was like 20 years or something, like 18 years or something like that, the last time that a Crystal High School team had won the state championship. It was in 1982. So we wanted to make sure that, you know, we brought it back for our town and it was our last year in, in high school. So we had to get it done. I was fortunate enough to get there my freshman year, but we came up short and seeing the pain and, and having that taste of getting there and falling short to me personally on my career. It was the last thing that I needed to accomplish to, you know, cross my goals off. Was there any particular bumps in the road or teams that gave you any trouble during that run? Oh, I mean, every team from my freshman year on to to up until we won it, it was all tough. It was never easy. I remember back then the Chrisfield and Pokemoke battles were really big games. The Chrisfield and Snow Hill games were really big games um, as far as 1A getting there. Then we had, in the 2A, we had battles with Wahai and just tons of different programs that were really good in this area. We opened the season my senior year against the defending champions of North Dorchester with Carlton Dotson, who was my teammate in AAU. I mean, they had won the state championship in 99. That was our first game on the road, and it set the tone for us because we won that game on the road, and you know, and, and we knew what we wanted to do. But there were plenty of, of bumps in the road and injuries and shortcomings, but we just kept grinding, and we were fortunate enough to finally do it in our senior year. Winning that championship, what was that feeling, especially when the clock ran down to zero and you had this one thing that no one could ever take away from you? At that time, it was uh, probably the best feeling in my life at the time. I wasn't doing that just for me. I did it for my city, for my town. I was doing that for my older brother because I, I remember the pain that he had his senior year when we got to College Park and we fell short. I remember looking at him when we were all the other kids that, Either they weren't really bothered by it or, you know, they had more years of high school to try. They were enjoying themselves the moment in the swimming pool, around the hotel, you know, and my brother was kind of off to himself in tears, crying. 
So I remember that and I remember that feeling. And, you know, I wanted to try to win that for him as well. So it was an amazing feeling. I actually looked over. It's crazy. I don't know how, but when I looked over and looked up in the stands and all those people, because I believe the entire city of Chrisville was at that game. It was like I locked my eyes in on my brother. I could see him and, you know, he was crying. I was crying. You know, it was just an amazing feeling at that time. Well, I mean, the state championship had the opportunity to go to the University of Maryland. Before we get into your the time at Maryland and the national championship, what were some of the other schools that were looking at you or you were looking at before you made the decision to go to College Park? So I had Temple, Texas, Villanova, St. Joe's, University of Delaware. It, it was a good amount. You know, Rutgers, UVA, North Carolina. Um, it was a good amount of schools. What gave the Terps the edge over some of those other prestigious programs? I mean, it's you know, I'm from Maryland. My dad is a Maryland fan. Um, I grew up knowing Maryland basketball history. My mentor is from that area, so I always was around that area. Um, it was easier for me to get home if I needed to be home. I had family up there, you know, and just the program. You know, you can look at a coach like Gary Williams, who's a Hall of Fame coach, and seeing the energy and how he fought for his players every single game, every single possession, it was an atmosphere I wanted to be a part of. And I know, of course, the reputation with Gary Williams is that he loves coaching the scrappy teams, those guys that maybe were not given the opportunity anywhere else or that are too small or don't have particular assets that maybe some of the other programs are, are seeking. But to you, did you feel like you fit right in immediately going into Maryland? I mean, it was some adjustments, adjustments for me. But as far as fitting and knew I belong, absolutely. I think it was kind of similar to high school. I had to feel my way especially with the physicality of the ACC. You know, it was a lot of big guards, but as far as that program and the attitude and the atmosphere and the winning spirit and, you know, the way Gary Williams gave everything for his players and how his players would get give everything for him, um, absolutely, I fit right in. I belong. I had an opportunity to attend Gary Williams' camp uh, probably right before I left to go. I think it was a week before I went to Nike All-American camp my, going into my senior year that summer. So that's actually when Maryland started recruiting me. So I went to Gary Williams basketball camp. They saw what I was doing in the camp against my peers, and they invited me to play pickup with the team. And, you know, I, I held my own. I would say Juan Dixon was a sophomore maybe that year. And from then on, I knew I could play at that level. Going into that, that championship run that the Terps had, what was the buzz like? around that roster uh so i say it started the year before i got there which was supposed to be my freshman year i ended up going to hargrave because i didn't qualify sat but you know what they did in 2000 and 2001 set the tone for the year which was actually my freshman year in 2001 2002 and immediately the buzz was it was championship or or bust they had just went to the final four Blew a 20-point lead, I believe it was, against Duke in the first half. And those guys were hurt from that. So the first day I stepped foot on campus, you know, immediately you could tell it was all business and you could tell that the guys were hungry to get back to the Final Four. So I knew right then, like, I was going to be a part of history. Um, I knew what I was a part of was going to be special. I knew 
it fit my demeanor, my my mentality. Those guys just wanted to win. Everybody was super unselfish. We were a family, you know, so the buzz was, it, it was simple. It was get back to the Final Four, uh, which was in Atlanta that year, and it was to win a championship. You also had the opportunity, especially, I believe it's that same season, to score the final basket in Coalfield House history. Yeah, yeah. Cool trivia. <laughs> I honestly didn't realize it was, oh, I'm making the last shot in, in this building's history, you know. But it was uh, it was pretty cool after the fact when it went in and, you know, everybody was saying, oh, man, you made the last basket in Cole and stuff like that. You know, it's something that I can share with my kids. I can share with the kids around here on the Eastern Shore. And it's something that, you know, people can be inspired by. And just looking at that, winning that national championship, going through that run, the game against Indiana, I still remember it clear as day going into that championship. What was the feeling like going into that final and facing a team like the Hoosiers? I mean, the Hoosiers were, they are a historic program. So whenever you're playing against them on that stage, the game could go either way. Uh, obviously, every game could go either way, but even more so when you're playing against uh, that caliber of a historic team. However, I, I have full confidence in the work that we have put in, the work that, that Coach Williams had put in to prepare us and his staff. And we fully believed in our leaders like Juan Dixon and Steve Blake and Wilcox and, and Lonnie uh, Mouton, you know, those guys set the tone, and, and that was a true, if, if you talk about a unit that didn't care about anything but winning, you know, that was it. You know, so going into that game, tons of emotions. I remember after we won, man, I cried like a baby just being a part of that and knowing where I come from and the humble beginnings and the struggle of growing up in Chrisfield. And, you know, it was like it was all full circle, couldn't really believe what I was a part of, but. I believe I'm one of two people from the Eastern Shore that have won a national championship. Uh, I know Albert Morin won one with Connecticut. I'm not sure if anyone else have, but, you know, it, it was a blessing, man. And it was, it was just an amazing experience to be a part of. And I think a lot of people tend to underscore that that team also had several guys who went into the NBA as well. As you mentioned, Lonnie Baxter, Chris Wilcox, Juan Dixon, Steve Blake. Would you say that's one of the more talented teams in Maryland history. I know a lot of people will say that some teams may have the talent, but not all the time do those guys end up getting to go to the pros. Uh, I feel like Gary Williams probably had more talented teams, individual talented teams. I mean, you're talking like he's coached guys like Joe Smith and Steve Francis, who, you know, those guys are out of this world, unbelievable talent, you know, but I, I think, the type of underdogs and, and the heart that we've had, it was hands down the best team that have ever come through Maryland history. You know, and like I said, you had that unit, that starting unit. All of us really, you know, it didn't matter. We all just wanted to win. But that starting unit, you know, to be able to gel the way they did and, and they understood that they were only going to go as far as our team did. So the more we won, the more opportunities that Chris Wilcox had a, had a chance to show what he was capable of. Um, against those top players like a Drew Gooden and a Nick Collison and, you know, a Jared Jeffries and stuff like that. And the same with Juan. You know, Juan was an undersized two guard. In the NBA, he would be a point guard, you know. And the further he was able to take us, the more opportunities he had to show what he was capable of and able to do at any level, you know. So as far as the most talented team, uh, 
I, I can't say we were that, but I can definitely say we were the team that had the most heart and the most fight. Following that championship run, you played another season at Maryland. What was that season like, and what led to your decision to transfer from Maryland to Loyola? I mean, well, I actually I played uh, another full season. Minutes were up and down. Never really got a real opportunity to showcase um, what I was doing in practice. You know, now I've learned to to kind of accept that and and move on. And understand it wasn't a deck of cards for me, but I decided to leave Maryland my junior year because, you know, I knew for me my goal was always to play professional basketball and. I had just ran out of the belief and the confidence that it was going to happen if I stayed at Maryland. So I made a decision that was best for me and my family. And it turned out to be the best decision I could make. Do I know what would happen? Every now and then I think back, I wonder what would happen if I stayed. I know I wouldn't have averaged 26 points a game and finished fourth in the nation in scoring or any of that stuff. But, you know, I have no regrets in, in making that decision. I was very thankful for my time that I had at University of Maryland. All of those friendships and brotherhoods that I experienced there and, you know, being a part of, of great runs, like winning the ACC championship and winning the national championship and, you know, making the last shot in Coldfield House. That, you know, it was Maryland is, is another home for me. So, you know, it, it was a tough decision, but it was something that I had to do in order to make sure I further my professional career, my basketball career. Going to Loyola was, I guess, Coach Patsos getting the job. Was that a big thing and and luring you to Loyola as well or the opportunity of playing time? Uh, It was Patsos, period. That was the only reason why I went to Loyola. Um, I had actually left University of Maryland after the fifth or sixth game of my junior year and sat out the rest of the year. And I hadn't made a decision on where I was going to go. And he gave me a call saying that he had taken the job at Loyola. And when he called me, me and Pat Sosa always had a pretty good relationship. So dating all the way back to when I attended Gary Williams basketball camp. So it was an easy decision for me. I decided to go to Loyola right on the spot without visiting the campus or anything like that. You know, it was just he called me. I said, all right, I'm going to rock with you. And, you know, it was his first year as a head coach. And it was an opportunity for me to prove to everyone what I could do on the college level and get my name out back out there and put myself in position to make some money to play basketball. And then the 05-06 season, looking at it, uh, that's when Loyola went 15 and 13. You had one of your biggest seasons, averaging 26 points, almost five assists and almost four rebounds per game. I believe that that was the time at one point you led the country in scoring average. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, yep. I uh, I was leading the country in scoring for, I want to say, probably two or three weeks. You know, and it was some pretty pretty good names up there. You had J.J. Reddick, Adam Morrison, Keidra Clark, who I believe he still holds the NCAA record for most points. You know, it, it was some good company up there, you know. And I had a really good season at Loyola. I had really great teammates that, you know, there weren't any jealousy or anything like that. They fed me the ball and you know, put me in position to score. You know, I had a really good year. It was a fun year. You know, it was the first winning season that Loyola had since the late Skip Prosser was coaching there in the early 90s. You know, so two years before I got there, I believe they had only won like one game. The year that I had to sit out, we had won only six games or something like that. So, you know, to be able to to have a winning record the year that I played and kind of 
created this trend of it being okay to transfer to Loyola um, because while I was there, there were several guys who transferred from, from bigger programs, bigger schools from the Big East and ACC to come to Loyola. Uh, after I transferred there, they were able to eventually get to the NCAA tournament. So I take more pride in, in being kind of like the guy or one of the guys to turn that program around, to see it take its pivot and turn it around and, and to start seeing the success that they've had since I've left there. Following your finishing your career at Loyola, when the opportunity came around, especially for NBA opportunities, draft, things like that, how did you go forward and looking at that? Uh, did you feel like you had an opportunity, maybe, if not to get drafted, maybe to get some opportunities to catch on with some teams, either in the summer league or in training camps? So this is the part where I would say I have my only regret uh, when it comes to my college career. So I was invited to Portsmouth. I had scouts looking at me. I had NBA teams. The Dallas Mavericks were interested in me. The uh, New York Knicks were interested in me. The Denver Nuggets, you know, and I tried to get my year of eligibility back from when I left Maryland. I had only played five or six games. And, you know, it was something I had tried to do because I know that all majority of the scouts, they told me straight up they wanted to see me play more of a point guard role. And that following year, had I gotten my extra year of eligibility, I probably would have been in a position to probably score a little less and play more of a point guard role and show my abilities of playmaking, you know. So I decided to not go to Portsmouth in hopes that NCAA was going to grant me an extra year eligibility. And by the time they told me they declined it, it was pretty late in the summer. The draft was coming up, you know. So my only option at that point in time was to, to go overseas. What was the biggest adjustment playing overseas compared to playing at the NCAA level and state side? Honestly, um, it's very similar. You know, I would say the biggest adjustment for me was getting used to the travel call in in Europe. They really believe in you got to put the ball down first before you actually, you know, move. On the college level, if you look at here in the States, a lot of the stuff that they do, um, a lot of it is traveling when they get the ball from a triple threat and maybe rip through and try to attack the basket. You know, they tend to, to move, pick up that foot at the same time as they probably are about to bounce the ball. So I probably, in the preseason, my rookie year, I probably averaged about four turnovers and all of them were off of travels. Was the language barrier any issue? I know that while well, it is Europe and, and English is spoken a lot, did you have any issues with sort of adjusting with whatever language barrier there may have been? No, I didn't because either my teammates who spoke English would help or I've always had coaches that spoke you know good enough English to where I could understand and then later on in my career probably about my third or fourth year in Europe in Italy I learned Italian so that made it even easier for me because now I was able to communicate with the referees able to have conversations with with my coaching staff in their native language so I would say the language barrier wasn't ever an issue for me. Again, you mentioned learning Italian your fourth year over there. How difficult was it learning a new language, especially we're so used to over here? It's either French or Spanish or something along those lines. Uh, it was tough, but I put myself in the mix in their culture every single day of, of trying to actually take in fully their culture. 
and experienced everything, the beautiful parts of Europe. You know, I traveled a lot. So I was going to be there. It wasn't like I could, you know, just jump on a plane and fly home and go back and forth. You know, so I had to step outside of my comfort zone to really fully indulge in their culture. And I think that helped me have a really good career in Europe because I was always able to, no matter where I went, I was able to adjust and make whatever city I was in or country I was in home. For someone who decides to go to Europe, what would be the one place they would have to see in Europe before they die? Uh, that's a tough question, man. There's so many places. For me, one of, one of the better cities that I enjoyed was Istanbul and Turkey. You know, I really like Istanbul. I like south of France. It's a tons of different places. You know, all of them can't come to my mind right now. But, you know, I fully enjoyed my experience over there. I, I love Rome and Italy. I love Venice and Italy. You know, I would say just get to Europe in general. You know, as far as the countries I played in, all of them were beautiful. Some of them were difficult to live in at times. Like Turkey was difficult to live in because city I played in, I was about an hour from the Syrian border. And that was when Syria was at war. So it was car bombs and all types of dangers in that country. So, you know, that made it a little bit difficult. But, you know, just from a standpoint of Europe in itself, Greece and, you know, Santorini, there's so many beautiful places in Europe. Then the opportunity to win a championship and professional ball in Europe. What was that like? It made you a pretty decorated athlete, especially winning at the high school level, winning at the NCAA level and the college level and the Division One level, and then playing and winning professionally. What did that championship mean to you? It meant everything to me. You know, over there, it's kind of like people take pride in their cities. You know? you know, it was a big deal. The fans were amazing. You know, it reminded me a lot of both championships I won as far as state championship and then the national championship. It was a big deal. People celebrated it the same way. You know, I was able to do that in my second year in Europe. And it kind of just stamped and made me, I guess, someone who will forever be appreciated in that city, in that organization. I remember when I played for another team and I came back to a game to watch, you know, I walked in the arena and I had a standing ovation. So I never took that type of stuff for granted because coming from Chrisville, you know, those are the type of things that you can only imagine or dream of. It's not something that happens on the, on the normal. So for me, it was an amazing experience. And it's up there just as much as winning one for my hometown and winning the national championship, because it's two things that are very difficult to do. As you continue to play over in Europe, were there any other overtures or opportunity to come back stateside and, and maybe look at the NBA at that time? Or did those opportunities come up then? I mean, I had a couple opportunities to play in the summer league, but I really didn't entertain them too much because I felt like my a better market for me was in Europe at that time. I had proven myself to be able to be one of the better point guards in the leagues that I was playing in. And financially, I was getting contracts that, you know, were hard to, to really pass up and hard to turn down and, and take an opportunity on something that wasn't really guarantee and take an opportunity on something that we, I would be just doing to say, you know, hey, I realized I always wanted to play in the NBA, so now I'm playing in the NBA. But what if that situation isn't financially the same as what is going to be in Europe? Or I know me, like I would, no matter what level I would play on, I would always want to play. I would always want playing time. So for me, I had different opportunities to try and attempt to be in the NBA, but 
I decided to just do what was more concrete and, and something that was more set in stone. And you concluded your career around 2016. What led to the decision to to hang it up? I think you were still probably mid-30s at the time, am I right? Or what led to you, I guess, the sign to just to call it a career? Yeah, I think I was like 33. Um, I uh, had played, you know, 10 and a half years. My son was getting a little older. He was, I believe, four or five at the time. He was probably five at the time when I retired. My daughter was three. And it just got more and more difficult every year that went by when it was time for me to leave and go to Europe and leave them to. So honestly, I would say it was just the difficulty of leaving my kids behind and, and you know, not seeing them for five or six months at a time. And then they'll come over for Christmas and for a week and then they're gone. And then I wouldn't see them again until summer. I was just missing countless steps in my kids' lives. And it was at a time where I just felt like I couldn't take it anymore. It wasn't fun for me anymore being without my kids. Then coming back stateside and then having those opportunities to coach at the uh, high school level. How did those opportunities turn up? Normally, sometimes you have to be immersed in the system and people know people and, and things like that. Getting those opportunities to coach at not only James and Bennett, but your alma mater, Chrisfield as well. How did those opportunities come about? Well, honestly, I always said that I would never coach high school basketball. I wanted to coach, but I wanted to coach on the college level. However, the summer I came home right before I retired, I did my first Andre Collins Skills basketball camp. And I just found a new joy in, in giving back and teaching the kids the game. You know, I found a new passion in it. I enjoyed doing it. I remember I, the last day of my camp is when I decided that I wasn't going to play anymore. And I backed out of the garage and my son, you know, I had a duffel bag and I guess he thought I was about to leave to go back to Europe. And, you know, he started crying. And from that last camp, I went there that day and I told him, I was like, man, fellas, I think I'm done. I had BJ Johnson, who's Stephen Decatur's coach, Bubby Brown, who was Bennett's coach now. Russell Camper was there. Craig Winder was one of the counselors at my camp. You know, and I was just talking to the guys and, you know, and I told him, I was like, man, I think I'm done playing and I think I want to coach. And they was like, man, you really should coach. You should do it. And Dean Sullivan happened to reach out to me, I guess, when he got wind that I was going to retire and said, hey, man, let's coach together. What you think about it? And, you know, I thought about it and I ended up, you know what? Why not? Why not give back? I wasn't working or anything like that. I was just sitting home. So I, I felt like it was an opportunity for me to continue to give back to the kids and pay the game forward. Going onto the sidelines and coaching, what was the biggest transition from playing to coaching? Like, I always hear that sometimes the most helpless feeling is that you're no longer able to actually go out there and do anymore. And you're just hoping that you can impart enough wisdom to those who you're instructing to follow through. Yeah, absolutely. That is definitely one of them. You could put the guys in position and you could tell them what to do and prepare them all day. But not being able to actually go out there and physically do it yourself and impact the game in that way. That was an adjustment. And I, I felt like this was kind of an adjustment because it was on the sideline, you know, and I wasn't on the floor being able to do it. I feel like I was always able to do it as a leader as far as knowing, figuring out the emotions of my teammates. It's a little less difficult than figuring out your, the emotions of your players, understanding who you could probably yell at a little bit more or demand more out of or, you know, all of those type of things. But the biggest adjustment for me was um, 
trying to coach every kid and some of the kids not really care about basketball. Some of them just wanted to be a part of something to say they were on the team. And so for me, that was a hard part to do, being able to coach someone who doesn't care about the game of basketball. And when I was still at a point where I could still go back overseas and play and get contracts and stuff like that. And just being in that atmosphere where I'm coming from, where every player, every coach, everybody in the organization cares about, you know, winning and cares about the program versus some kids just don't care, you know? So for me, that was tough. Then finally ascending and running your own program. What is the biggest thing like that, that you have to do, especially feel like there's a little more than caretaking that you have to do when you're fully running your own program? Yeah, absolutely. You know, in the high school level is not just high school, but college as well. But high school, especially, you're trying to raise young men. You're trying to groom them. Basketball is not the only thing that's important when it comes to to coaching high school kids. In fact, it's probably the least important thing. You have to mold those guys into good people, hoping that when they walk out of them school doors and they graduate, they will go right instead of going left. So it's very difficult. It's hard to run your own program, especially when you're dealing with sometimes you may have kids who haven't had a meal all day or don't know where their next meal is going to come from. They don't have clean clothes or their home situation is not good. You become more of a father figure. But it was easy for me to do because I had a great coach, the late Mr. Rayfield, who was another father figure to me. And, you know, I just tried to make sure anything that I did, it was kind of patterned and patterned after what Mr. Rayfield would do for us. Going to have the opportunity to coach at your alma mater, coaching at Chris Field, how did that opportunity come up? And then what was that like, especially taking the uh, sidelines that first game, helping to coach Chris Field? Honestly, it was years of people in the town kind of getting on me about coaching and wanting me to come home and coach. Dave Arnold, who was the current coach at the time, he had extended, you know, a welcome to me multiple times to come and coach. And it got to a point where I felt like it was something that I wanted to experience of just coaching at home. I knew the pride that comes with that, the tradition that comes with that. Uh, You know, there's nothing like being in that gym, being a part of that history and being a part of trying to win a championship. So it was honestly, it was a tough decision for me to leave the kids at Bennett, which what I wanted to do was I told myself I would not leave until every kid that came with me as far as that started with me in my first year of coaching, if any kid was in that program still, I was going to be there and see them through up until they left and graduated. And that's what I did. Saquon Cotton was the last kid from that freshman year, from my first year of coaching. And once he graduated, you know, I made the decision to attempt to go back home and try to bring bring a state title to Chrisville. How long did you decide that coaching was going to be the thing before you made your decision to walk away from it? Well, what I learned was, honestly, in Chrisville, for me, COVID had hit and it was an opportunity for me to sit back and kind of put things in perspective and see what I really needed to be doing. You know, I kind of used coaching as a way to give back, to pay the game forward and to share my knowledge and my experiences with the kids on the Eastern Shore, the things that I was able to accomplish and do, things that I've learned. But, you know, again, my son was getting older and I wanted to be a little bit more hands-on with him. My time was spread thin. I took a job in Chrisfield as the community center director in the neighborhood that I grew up in. So my hours at that job prohibited me to be able to really dedicate my time and my effort and what I needed to be into being a coach. 
So it was an opportunity for me to just walk away from that program and really put more time to my kids and more time to my son's basketball, trying to develop him into, you know, being able to play on a high level, you know, as well as do community work that I do. I know that you talk about doing community work and you've done your annual Dre Day events. How did that get started and how much work goes into something like that, putting it all together? So Dre Day got started. I was actually home. Can't remember what year, what summer it was. It may have been like 2013 or 14, something like that. I was home in the summer and I was watching the news and I saw a kid named Raheem Russell. He was murdered, shot a gun from across the parking lot into a crowd of kids. They were at a hotel party and he was hit by the bullet and he was murdered. Then the next day I saw his mother on the news and you know I just saw her strength and I wanted to do something so once I retired I remembered that and what I decided to do was birth Dre Day which brings awareness to gun violence bullying and drug abuse and every summer I usually do that event around my birthday weekend which is August the 9th however this year is going to be on August the 20th at UMES but Every year I do that event and I invite families who have lost loved ones to one of those three causes and honor them in some type of way. And what we do is we play a game of basketball. I invite celebs. We've done four Dre Days. Each year is growing into a a bigger event. I'm looking forward to this year. So basically it's just me trying to do something for the community and, and trying to bring awareness, bring love back to the Eastern Shore, which I love so much. And I know a lot of the things you've done, you even uh, recently become an entrepreneur, started doing a, a shoe store in Chrisfield and highlighting some of the, the different varieties of sneakers. How did you get involved with that? And what has that process been like? I mean, I've always been a sneakerhead, you know, just big on like retro Jordan, you know, big on fashion. So again, wanting to bring something to my hometown, to my city. For us in Chrisfield, if you drive, if you want to buy a pair of shoes, you either got to order them. Or you have to drive to Salisbury to buy a pair of shoes. So I wanted to put something in my town for the people, mainly for the people in town, as well as show them and inspire the kids that, you know, even though you come from here, there's tons of things that you can do. You can be an entrepreneur. You can be whatever it is you want to do. Hopefully everything that I do, I try to inspire the youth and inspire the people in my town. You know, you know, my business partner and I decided to open a sneaker store down in Chrisfield and been really good. Do you see any room for possible expansion spreading out? Maybe somewhere Princess Anne seeing that maybe if it, it grows big enough, maybe Salisbury, or is it just right now just focusing on the local part of Chrisfield? You know, honestly, like for us, I don't think we should probably expand on the shore, at least in those areas, just because we ship people, especially with the social media era. Most of our clientele is, is based off of online. We've had people from Ken Island drive all the way down to our stores. People from Easton have drove to our store and supported us. So I think the Eastern Shore is too small for us to probably expand, you know, have a store in Chrisfield and then put a store in Salisbury or or maybe not Salisbury. Salisbury would, would probably be the closest that we would expand to, but I think Princess Anne is probably about 10-15 minutes from Chrisfield, so it wouldn't really make much sense for us to expand there, but you know, you never know what happens, man. You know, things might change and it may be something that we need to look into in the future. But right now, you know, we're kind of just focused on trying to better our town, our city and Crystal. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you, and we talked about as well earlier in pre-show, looking back now, especially seeing how the game and the NBA has changed, do you feel like if you had come along 10 years later 
that you would have the opportunity for an NBA shot would be greater than it was at, at that time, almost 15, 20 years ago? Um, honestly, I think I would. I think back when I was coming out, there weren't many small guards playing in the NBA. I think now, I think the game has evolved so much. And, you know, I think definitely knowing what I know now, obviously, and, and if I came out in this era, a lot of kids are reclassing and, you know, all of that type of stuff. AAU is a little bit different. I think social media helps a lot. I most definitely think that my chances probably would have been stronger now if I was playing now versus you know, when I was in college a long time ago, when I was in college, we didn't really use social media the same way that it's used now. So college coaches can look at games online. NBA coaches can look at games online. They look at highlights and, you know, you can put yourself out there a little bit more now in regards to when I was coming out. So I think my chances would be stronger now had I came out instead of 22 years ago. I guess so. since we're on that path, what would you say the biggest piece of advice would be that if you could have the opportunity to talk to Andre Collins of 2002, what would you tell him then as a piece of advice? Just be patient, stay locked in, have no regrets, uh, be confident, which a lot of those things I was. Probably work on my craft even more. As much as I did, I still feel like I kind of probably didn't work on my craft once I got to the college level as much as how I worked on my craft when I played professional. You know, I think the work ethic changed once I got to the professional level because everybody was on the same level. So, you know, I would say just continue to work and just continue to give you all. And before we start wrapping up, how would you best define yourself? If you had a scouting report on Andre Collins during the prime of your career, how would you best describe your strengths and weaknesses? Uh, Weaknesses, definitely my height, which at times, especially playing on a professional level, it would kind of cost me on the defensive end. Uh. Strengths is definitely pick and roll, pick and roll player, very good shooter, very good passer, a winner, um, competitor, fearless, one of those players that give everything he had, you know, cared about his teammate, would do anything to win. That's all you need. If you got the heart and the determination, sometimes that can drive you very far. Before we wrap things up, what are ways people can reach out to you on social media and talk a little more basketball, even talk about their memories of you playing at either Loyola or at the University of Maryland or even at Crisfield? Um, my social media is Andre Collins on Facebook. Uh, on IG, I believe is Dre underscore four three. My uh, sneaker store is called Downtown Sneaks. And you can find me on IG at downtownsneaks.one as well as on Facebook, the same. I also have a gym where I train kids. It's in Parsonsburg, Maryland called Exposure Athletics. So on Facebook and IG, you can find us on Exposure Athletics for anyone who's, you know, looking to get skill development training. Uh, we start at all levels uh, from beginner to pro. Like I said, we got Dre Day coming up on uh, August 20th. So I'm looking forward to that. It's our fifth annual. Also have my annual basketball camp. You can find out information about that. You can hit me up on, on Facebook. Again, that's Andre Collins on Facebook. That's about all I probably can think of right now, man. Being able to talk with Andre about the inception of Dre Day and about his post-playing career was something I've been wanting to do, and I was glad that I was able to do it. Coming up on the next episode, my guest will be Dave Wiggum, former pitcher and founder of the Delmarva Aces Baseball Academy and travel team. We'll have a discussion on pitching, what it's like creating a program the scale of the Delmarva Aces, and how he was able to recover from a near-fatal incident while on the mound more than a decade ago. As always, all episodes of The Sports Refuge can be found wherever podcasts are heard, including Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, 
Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and on the Sports Refuge website. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on any of these apps and leave a mention, which we'll read on a future episode. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening and have a good one. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog. Thank you for listening.